I invite you please to join with me in prayer. Father, we have already in different ways expressed our desire uh, to see to see you, uh, to see the cross more clearly and through the cross, uh, to see ourselves more clearly, not just that we might see, um, but that we might be changed. Lord, we desire to be the people you have created us to be. We desire to be more like Jesus. And so we ask even now as we listen that we would hear you speak to us and be shaped by that. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you know much about the traditions of Lent, you'll know that in many churches throughout the world, normally, COVID probably makes this a little bit different, but normally on Ash Wednesday, there will be services where, where people will get ash put on their forehead and they will hear the words, dust you are, to dust you shall return. Because, and I think this is true, there is an importance in remembering this simple fact that you and I are mortal, that you and I will one day die. I think it was around sixth grade that I first realized not just the fact that I was mortal, but that I was terrified by the reality of death. I, I'm not sure why it was that time. That was not the first time I kind of come into contact with death. I have a distinct memory of when I was maybe like in second grade of us having a funeral at the church for a woman who had died of cancer in her 30s, and the casket was open, and I remember noticing this kind of wax-like body just kind of lying in front of us as we remembered her life. Um, much more trivially, but to me probably more importantly in that moment, I remember shortly thereafter my pet turtle dying. We had found this turtle in our backyard, and I had gotten a tank and, and the, you know, like every, the rocks and the food, and I remember for months he would be like swimming around on top of my dresser in this little tank, and then one day I just saw him floating, no longer swimming, and I, and I knew what it meant, and we buried him, and I cried, and, and then kind of moved on with life. But it wasn't until around sixth grade that it really struck me that, that my mom or my dad could die. That, that I could die. And though I knew that I was supposed to be comforted by the reality of the resurrection, I was haunted by the question of what happens if? What happens if that's not true? What happens if this is it? I've, I've heard people say that a, a, a fear of death is irrational um, because once you die, you won't suffer anymore. You won't feel sorrow. You won't feel anything. But I actually think that completely misses the point. What, at least for me, has held a certain degree of terror about death is not the pain of dying as much as the loss of life. Because if there's one thing I've come to realize more and more deeply, it's that I love life. I think that's actually something that's human, that we love life. I'm not saying that we always love our lives. Sometimes our lives are disappointing or very hard. I'm not saying that we just love to have our heart beating. If we've had loved ones who have been sustained by just kind of medical equipment, we know that that can just be kind of this pale shadow of what life really is. Now, when I'm saying we love life, I'm speaking of something that we all intuitively understand and yet have a hard time describing, the, the vitality, the aliveness of life. We're, we speak of, of creativity, the ability to come up with something new, of, of doing work that is good and that feels good. We speak of, of the learning that happens in life, the experience, the exploration, the enjoyment of good things. We speak of 
of friendship, of, of love, of laughter, all of this is what we mean when we talk about life. And it's that that I think is what makes death so hard for us to consider, the loss of that. We do have a hope, and we will talk about that in the future, but it is that reality of death separating us from something that we love so much that haunts us. I think it is even that which makes this life at times so painful. We, we long for something more. We, we are in kind of death's shadow even as we live. You know, in the Old Testament, there's this word that you see frequently in the Psalms, Sheol which literally refers to the place of the dead. In the Old Testament, they didn't fully understand how the resurrection would work. And so they, re they spoke of when people dying, they went down to the pit, to the place of the dead. And people were haunted by that. But as the Psalms develop, you realize there's this sense that, that even in this life, we have an experience of Sheol. The psalmist will speak about speaking to God from the pit, from despair, feeling the cords of death around them. And we... We get that because we, we see death. It, if Sheol is kind of death's headquarters, there is a sense that even now we are in its outer suburbs. We, we feel the reality of aging, of our life slowly being taken away. We feel the, the decay and chaos in society as we see injustice, as we see poverty and oppression, and we see people's hope being sapped. And and we know that the destination of every single person in this life is death. We are, as it were, surrounded by the walls of Sheol. And, and none of us, it seems, can escape. And, and that's what makes this life so hard at times. Because we have this hunger, this longing for life in all its fullness. And yet we are living life in the grip of death. And we want it to be changed. We want it to be Full. We want it to be everlasting. Our passage, I believe, tells us two truths that are very relevant to that. And the first is that this life that we hunger for, this life that we love, is the life that God deeply desires to give us. And the second truth is that the way to this life that God wants to give us is through a kind of death. So we begin uh, in our passage with Jesus and his disciples walking to this northern town, Caesarea Philippi. And, and Jesus asks them a question. It kind of feels like a casual question. So who do people say that I am? And, and interestingly, the disciples, when they answer, they say something that's probably not too different from what people would say today about Jesus. That he's a great teacher. That's essentially what a prophet is. They, you know, people think of you as someone who will teach them how to live, give them good information. And then Jesus turns to them, and as he so often does, moves it to personal. He, he asks them a personal question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, in this moment of divinely given insight, says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, the first part, Messiah, this is, not, this is not new information to us if we've been reading Matthew carefully. In fact, the very first verse of the Gospel of Matthew says, Jesus, the Messiah. 
That's saying that Jesus is God's fulfillment of the promise he has made of a great king coming to this earth. But it is the second part that, that helps shape our understanding of Messiah that I'm especially intrigued by. When, Jesus, when Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Why does he specify that? The living God. God. It's not like there are two gods, a dead one and a living one, and Peter feels the need to specify which one it is. No, when he is saying that you are the son of the living God, he is speaking about something that is true about who God is. That God is the God of life. He is the source of all living. That's who God is. When we think of life, we should think of God because everything that we love about life flows from God. I realize that probably feels abstract. Let's see if this helps. It might, it might continue to feel abstract, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. That it, sometimes I think, and actually you see this throughout history, people tend to associate nighttime with death and, and daytime with life. You know, like nighttime, a time of darkness, is a time where thieves can break in. It feels like it's a time where bad things can happen. But daytime feels alive, right? When we come out in daytime, we see plants who are growing because of the sunlight. When, when people were working, they could work outdoors during the daytime. Kids can play during the daytime. When you walk around, you can see the beauty of the world during daytime. Daytime feels more alive. So if you make that association, if we think of, of daytime in connection with life, then we should think of God essentially like the sun. So if we're in a dark room where the curtains are drawn, but we see this like beam of light kind of coming through the dark curtains, you know where that's like where you can kind of see the dust kind of floating in this beam of light. If we were to then trace that beam of light, if we were to look along it, you know as we look up on that light, we would see the sun shining outside of the room. In the same way, whenever we see life, whenever we experience life in all of its forms, if we were to trace its rays back to its source, we would find God. Because all of life comes from the living God. When we speak of the joy of creativity and of working well, we don't always realize it, but we're talking about us being able to participate in some small way in God's creativity. God who made us in his image so that we could experience a little bit what it's like to be like him. When, when we look and, and see beauty, whether it's the beauty of a baby sleeping or the beauty of the stars scattered into the space, what we are seeing are echoes of God's greatness. The Bible says the whole world shouts that God is glorious. When we feel the beauty of, of relationships, of connection, of love, God is allowing us in some small way to experience what it's like to be him, Father, Son, and Spirit, who for all eternity experience love between each other. Every aspect of life, if we just listen, is whispering to us of the greatness of the God who is living and calling us to worship the living God. The more that we draw near to God in his fullness, the more we experience life in its fullness. He is the living God. If you love life, whether you realize it or not, what you are loving is found in God. And so now when Peter says that Jesus is the son of the living God, he is saying something very important. 
In that day where the son of anyone would be the apprentice who would fulfill the job, who was supposed to represent his father well, sonship was about more than biology. If you said you're the son of someone, you are speaking of their, their job and who they are. And so when Peter says to Jesus, you are the son of the living God, he's saying something about who Jesus is. He's saying, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are God's life bringer. Jesus, you have come into this world that is surrounded by the gates of Sheol, and you have come to bring life. And Jesus says, that's right. He says, God revealed this to you, Peter. He owns that reality that, yes, he is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. And if we have been paying attention, we realize at this point that all of Matthew has been preparing us for this revelation. Because everything that Jesus is doing is bringing life where once there was death. Someone who is blind in the grips of this death, they can see. Someone whose arms could not move because they were paralyzed. Jesus breaks through and gives their arms life. Someone who was caught in a kind of death of sin and slavery being a tax collector, Jesus shows mercy and brings into freedom. And those who are caught in the deathly grip of lies like the Pharisees, Jesus again and again seeks to free. When Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest, the context shows he is saying, come to me so that I can connect you to God, so that you can know the joy that is found in God. He is declaring, I have come to give you life. In fact, if we were to read John's Gospel, another account of Jesus, we see Jesus explicitly saying this. He says at one point, I have come. Why? That they may have life and have it abundantly. That's what Jesus wants. He wants that we might have life abundantly. And do you notice as, as he responds to Peter what he says next after he's saying, yes, you, what you're saying is true. The Father has revealed this to you. And now it begins. My community begins. I'm building my church on this rock of your confession. And what does he say next? The gates of Hades will not overpower it. Hades is just another word for Sheol. The gates of Sheol, right now, you might feel like you are surrounded by the walls of Sheol and there's no breaking out, but if you are part of my community, I am leading a jailbreak and you will break through death itself. He is saying that, the, that his church, his community, is a community of life that death cannot hold. That's what we are. We are a community of life. We are a community whose hope is that we know that the gates of death will not be able to hold us. But that there's life beyond. We are a community who even now, because of Jesus, are connected more deeply to the living God. Which means, if we are doing it rightly, we should be more and more alive as we grow as a community. More and more creative, more and more joyful, more and more hopeful. Because in Christ is the life of God himself. That is who we are called to be. The gates of Hades cannot overpower us, Jesus says, because he is building us. But for us to experience this life that he desires to give us and make us into as a community, we need to understand the second truth that is also absolutely crucial in this passage. 
And that is the way to this life that is abundant life is found by walking through a kind of death. So right after Jesus says this about his church, we have the fundamental turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. As I said, everything has really been leading up to this confession that Peter makes. And after he makes this confession, we actually have Matthew very explicitly telling us that there is something new that's taking place. Do you notice how in verse 21 it says, from then on, Jesus began. This is marking a new thing that's happening. And, and what is happening? Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. This is the first time he explicitly tells his disciples that he who has come into this world has come to die. He'll say it two more times in chapter 17, chapter 20, almost exactly the same thing. And, and by this, he's making it clear that this is not a risk that he's hoping to avoid. This is not a failure that might take place. This is his choice. This is what he is walking towards intentionally. He says it is necessary to happen for his mission to be fulfilled. And Peter just about loses it. Do, do you notice how shocking what happens next is Peter has practically fallen on his knees in worship saying, you are God's appointed king, the son of the living God. And right after Jesus says this, what does it say? It says he takes Jesus aside and he chews him out. He rebukes him. He rebukes the son of God. It's shocking. Except when we stop to think of what he must have been experiencing, it's actually not that surprising. Peter loves life. And all of this time he's been walking with Jesus, he's been seeing just life springing from Jesus everywhere he goes. And now he has confessed that Jesus is the son of the living God, and Jesus says, that's true, and I'm building a community of life. And Peter is just so excited, and then Jesus says, and now I'm going to die. How in the world can that make sense? And Peter, who undoubtedly is doing some calculus in his head in this moment, is, is thinking, and wait a second, I'm following this king. If this is the direction he is going, what does that mean for me? And a few verses later in verse 24, Jesus seems to confirm his worst fears. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If we don't actually feel the shock of this verse, it's because we don't really understand it. I've heard sometimes people talk about, oh, this was my cross to bear, like, you know, maybe they have some chronic pain or something bad's happening, it's their cross to bear, and that's just not getting it, honestly. The only time you would carry a crossbeam is when you were walking to your immediate execution. And before you stands the most humiliating, torturous death. That's what it means to carry your cross. Jesus is saying, this is where I am going. I'm going to this kind of death, and if you want to belong to me, you need to follow 
I tried to think of what a modern-day equivalent might be, and, and maybe if, if we kind of translated this as Jesus is saying, anyone who wants to be with me, you need to let the noose be put around your neck and wait by the gallows with me. Except when I was talking to a couple of, of people yesterday, they pointed out that's not really enough because the gallows is quick and it doesn't have the same level of humiliation. He's talking about even something bigger He's saying that to be my disciple, you need to let go of your grip on control, your, your grip of, of, of seeing to make sure that you have your own happiness. You need to let go of your preservation of your own dignity. You need to let go of your preservation of your own comfort. You need to be willing to relinquish all of it. There is no Christianity, says Jesus, without the way of the cross. We see that when, when Peter is reacting the way he's reacting, what does Jesus say? He says, get behind me, Satan. If you think there is a way to do this without me going to the cross, that is satanic, he is saying. And what's more, he says in verse 25, that whoever wants to save his life will lose it. If, if you refuse to go this direction, if you refuse to release your vice-like grip on control of your life, you will lose your life. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Jesus is not just talking about kind of the extra spiritual level of Christianity here. There's something shocking and sobering that we must hear. He is saying the only pathway that there is if you are following me is the way of the cross. The way of renouncing self. The way of saying, I am not my own any longer. But the key to understand this is the entire purpose of Jesus calling us in this pathway is not to death, but to life. There seems to be something that the, the disciples are almost pathologically unable to hear about Jesus' message when he speaks of the cross. Did you notice that when Jesus speaks of his death, that's not where his description ends? You notice that what he says is not that it's going to end with chief, price and, chief priests and scribes be killed, full stop. But no, he says, and be raised the third day. In chapter 17, it finishes with the same thing, and on the third day be raised. In chapter 20, it finishes with on the third day be raised. Jesus isn't talking about his failure not talking just about the way of death or the way to death. It is only a pathway. He is speaking of the pathway to life. Jesus is saying, here is the way out of Sheol. It's the way of the cross. Notice, again, if we look at verse 25, he doesn't just say, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. He also says, Whoever loses his life because of me will find it. 
Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, I'm actually wanting to give you life. I want you to find life. I am telling you of the way to life. Jesus is saying to come into this life, to find life beyond it, I will build kind of a tunnel through death itself. That is the way of the cross. And the only way out is for you to follow me through it. Because Jesus understands something that we don't. That is, that this life that we are holding on to and think that we can hold on to, but we can't. This life is the only life that the gates of Hades are able to hold. And if we can somehow release this life and be given something new, a new kind of life, a resurrection life, then nothing can hold it. Jesus is saying, here is the way to the life you long for. Follow me through what feels like death. And it will, when it, when it involves the kind of self-renunciation, sometimes it will be painful, sometimes it will feel humiliating, but trust me, follow me through this way to a life that I have to offer you that is life and life abundantly. That is what this passage is telling us. As, as I'm thinking about what Jesus is saying here when he says that whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. I'm reminded of the story of Jim Elliot. Perhaps you've heard of a missionary by the name of Jim Elliot who lived in the 50s. Um, excuse me, he was a missionary in the 50s. He and a group of four other people all were going to a place in, in very you know, remote Brazil uh, to a place that really hadn't been contacted by anyone outside of their own like immediate world and he knew there was great risk. And so as he and these other people were, were trying to approach, trying to make connections, things seemed promising at first, but at a certain point, radio contact ceased. And some days later, his body was found with spears all the way through it. He had been killed. And one of the things he's most known for is something that he wrote in his journal sometime before this apparent tragedy took place, where he wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He knew that this life, with all of its greatness and beauty, was something that was in the grip of death. He would, no lo he would not be able to hold on to it. Sure, he died then. If he hadn't died then, he would have died at some point. He, he let go of what he could not keep in order to gain but he cannot lose. The gates of Hades have not been able to hold Jim Elliot. He is rejoicing with God even in this moment. And what, what we have in this passage is God calling to us, all of us who love life. Life, he says, is found in me, and I have given my son to bring life to you, to form this community of life. And the only way to this life is if you follow me through a kind of death. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. 
but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. I invite you to spend uh, a couple minutes in prayer, maybe um, using this time in a specific way to once again let go of your hold of control and turn to Christ and entrust yourself to him. And in a couple minutes' time, I will lead us in prayer.